Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. <laughs> the ladies not for turning. Creating a nation requires the will of the people. Is a quote from Sir Edmund Barton, the statesman, barrister and jurist who served as the first Prime Minister of Australia. I thought this was a fitting quote for our guest today. Someone who has had the privilege of leading the nation following the will of the people in Australia's 44th federal election. Our guest today is the Honourable Tony Abbott AC, who served as the 28th Prime Minister of Australia. He was the member for Warringah in the Australian Parliament from 1994 to 2019, was Leader of the Opposition from 2009 to 2013, and during the Howard Government served as a Cabinet Minister for Employment and Workplace Relations, as well as Health and Ageing. Currently, Tony is a director of the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilisation, serves on the Council of the Australian War Memorial, and is an advisor to the UK Board of Trade. He is a patron to several charities, including Soldier On, the International Sports Promotion Society, and the Worldwide Support for Development. And in 2022, he was conveyed with the Grand Cordon of the Order of the Rising Sun. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in South Africa, India and Brazil, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blender Partners, board and executive search firm. In a wide-ranging discussion, we unpack Tony's thoughts on the current state of Australia, its leadership and standing on the world stage, and where he sees society heading. From the debate in Australia leading up to the referendum and the cost of living crisis, to the ongoing conflicts overseas and shifts in the power balance. We discuss his concerns for the country and the world at large. Finally, we uncover his thoughts on leadership and how it starts with oneself. So sit back and enjoy, knowing your own mind. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. The Prime Minister is the number one role in the land. Are you ever prepared well enough before you accept that role? There's a sense in which uh, no one is ever fully prepared for that role, but then there are lots of things in life that you can never really prepare for. I think most of us aren't really prepared for marriage. We're not really prepared for parenthood, but we uh, we give it the best shot we can, given everything that's gone before. 
I was lucky in that I'd had four years as opposition leader, yep. and I think there are no better preparations for being prime minister than being opposition leader because you've obviously thought about government, you've obviously thought about what changes you want to make, and you've obviously spent a lot of time trying to discern the mood of the nation. So, look, I think I was as well prepared as anyone. I guess uh, uh, what I didn't really anticipate, at least back in 2013, was that uh, we would then do to ourselves uh, what Labor had done to itself yep. in its previous term of government. But uh, that's not something that you can ever prepare yourself for. No, you can't. Key elements then. Leading an opposition, it's a leadership role. Going forming government, it's a different role. So you're leading the party and you're leading the country. Where's the rule be differences there? As you say, you've done the prep. Yeah. Now, you, now you're driving the car. Leading the opposition, you're leading a tribe. Leading the nation is obviously a bit different. Uh, and, and the opposition leader is the leader of a tribe. The prime minister is the leader of the nation. And, and so there is a sense in which you've got to be able to reach out beyond your natural supporters, not to surrender your principles or to change who you are, but you've just got to be conscious of the fact that you are leading a nation and the job of the national leader, as far as possible, is to keep the country together. So what actually is leadership, Tony, in your, in your views? Leadership is, first of all, knowing your own mind and if you're going to be a leader, uh, you've got to know your own mind about what should change. Uh, so you've got to know your own mind about what's changed for the better. And then you've got to be able to assemble good arguments for the change you think ne is needed. And then you've got to be able to win people over to the change and the arguments. So there's, uh, I suppose, a self-knowledge. There's uh, a knowledge of the entity that you want to lead, and there's, I guess, a reasonable degree of familiarity with human nature and what appeals to people. Ultimately, Cabinet is a team. How do you develop a team, a really good team? You've got to give them something that they can all get stuck into uh, because uh, everyone in the Cabinet needs to have a real job where he or she can make a difference and then they've got to feel that there is a collective job where collectively they can they can make a difference. So you really need to give uh, every senior minister a, a portfolio task mm. and then you need to have a governmental task. Now, I actually thought in my two years as PM we, we had plenty on our plate. We had you the did. boats to stop at first. Uh, we had uh, the budget to repair. We had various taxes to repeal. We had a whole lot of nation-building programs, particularly infrastructure. We had things that we could do to improve the microeconomy, uh, the deregulation agenda, the uh, the trade agenda, and so on. So, so look, individually and collectively, I think the Abbott government had plenty to be going on with. Sadly, uh, we were to some extent derailed yeah. by the different personal agendas and ambitions inside that government. Now, that's a part of leadership. One part of leadership is securing it. Mm -hmm. The second part is keeping it. Mm -hmm. Didn't keep it. No. So what did you learn? Well, look, um, 
And it's a different battlefield, your battlefield, than most? Correct, correct, correct. Look, in the end, circumstance is incredibly important. Uh, Often Mm. that's the key factor. Napoleon reckoned that the one thing he wanted in his generals was luck. And I suppose uh, some leaders are are luckier than others. Uh, Yeah, it's true that the harder you work, the luckier you get. But nevertheless, I certainly don't think I could have worked harder than I did. Uh, but I guess uh, I was there at a time when perhaps uh, society was moving uh, to the left and I'm certainly uh, more on the right in inverted commas myself. Yeah. And uh, and there was, um, there was a lot going on inside the parliamentary party in terms of people with their own agendas. personal agendas. Now, one thing that I've got to say, uh, I did come to appreciate a lot more having – my own experience as leader, was the contribution that Peter Costello made to the great strength of the Howard government. Now, Mm. obviously, John Howard uh, was a great leader, arguably our best ever prime minister. He had a long time at the top, and in that time, he made quite a significant difference. But uh, he had in Peter Costello a lieutenant who was not only extremely able, but had the character to keep his own personal leadership ambitions, which were considerable, mm. nevertheless uh, under under check. And uh, I, I didn't have that experience, and I think that makes a difference. Uh, we all look back on the Great War, for instance, and we think, wow, what a wonderful general John Monash turned out to be. But, yeah. you know, I dare say that there were people killed on the first day at Gallipoli who may well have been just as good yeah. generals. And interestingly, a name that almost none of us Remember today, General William Holmes, today uh, known really only through General Holmes Drive down there near Mascot, General William Holmes was arguably as good a general as Monash, but he was killed not long after the Battle of Messines uh, by a stray shell burst uh, while he was leading uh, the then New South Wales Premier William Holman (laughs) on a tour of the front lines. So, So, look... There are all these personal qualities yep. that you should try to develop if you are to be an effective leader. But in the end, circumstance makes a massive difference for better or for worse. Henry Kissinger's just released the book, um, aptly called, I think it's Leadership. Mm. He identifies several prominent leaders, Adenauer, Charles de Gaulle, Sadat, Thatcher, Lee Kuan Yew, Richard Nixon, and their styles for the time. If you're looking at Australia today, what's the style of leadership do you think we're seeking? Well, they were all very different leaders, and um, I'm not super familiar with all of them. Mm. Uh, but they, were, they were for their time, but weren't they? True. I, I suppose the most important thing for a leader, a political leader, is to have an analysis of the time that makes sense. Now, Thatcher's analysis was that uh, Britain had become economically sclerotic and uh, it needed to be uh, substantially reformed. Um, Nationalised industries needed to be privatised. Inefficient companies uh, couldn't be propped up. Uh, Overmighty unions needed to be controlled. Uh, The armed forces needed to be sustained. The police needed to be supported. Traditional institutions needed to be uh, to be built up, and given that <laughs> morale was low, 
and Britain self-evidently was performing very, very much subpar in the late 1970s. She turned out to be a leader for the times. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, she could have become a one-term prime minister, uh, but for the Falklands War, which transformed her standing. I mean, maybe she was always going to win against uh, the then opposition leader, Michael Foote, who was um, a great orator but an incorrigible lefty. But nevertheless, uh, uh, there was a lot of dissension in her cabinet. And if you read Charles Moore's excellent biography of uh, Margaret Thatcher, the volume one is fascinating. Uh, The extent of the dissent in the ranks and the amount of, I suppose, briefing against her was, was pretty, pretty incredible. I guess at that point in time, there was really no one person who was able to, uh, to crystallize opposition to her. But uh, it was actually a pretty turbulent time. It's only in retrospect that these things look as, as smooth sailing as they do. Yeah, but we're going into some pretty turbulent times now. We've got the Northern Hemisphere. We've got issues on our own mm. uh, backyard. Mm. What does a nation look for in, in, in leadership? Uh, well, one one thing that uh, I think the Albanese government deserves praise for is uh, building on the AUKUS decision of the Morrison government. And I think that the program that the government has come up with to uh, have, first of all, uh, British and American nuclear submarines based here then to buy three or more nuclear submarines from the Americans, then to build them here in conjunction with the British. I think that's that's a, a good scheme. Okay. Now, it's one thing to have a good scheme. It's another thing to make it happen, given the difficulties of the defence bureaucracy. But nevertheless, all credit to the Albanese government for that. I'm not nearly as impressed by the Albanese government when it comes to domestic policy mm-hmm. as, I dare say, uh, people are starting to work out. I think that this voice is a thoroughly bad move. Uh, We're all in favour of Indigenous recognition, but this isn't about recognition. This is about transforming the way we governed. It will gum up government. It will entrench entrench race in our constitution in, I think, a very destructive way. And it's going to entrench Indigenous separatism, which again, I think, is at the heart of the problem of dysfunction in remote Indigenous Australia. So so the voice, I think, is a, a, a big step backwards. I think the government's energy policy is uh, is almost insane, but they're very much set on it, and I fear uh, what we're witnessing is a slow-motion train wreck. Just on the voice, why is it getting so much support so quickly then? Why are Australians just saying yes without necessarily doing their full due diligence? Uh, I think that there's an enormous goodwill towards Aboriginal people and the government is pushing this forward under false pretenses. It's saying that it's just about listening to Aboriginal people. Well, we've been listening to Aboriginal people very intently for the best part of the last half century. This isn't about listening. This is about trying to ensure that no serious decisions of government can be made without a substantial Indigenous input. Now, some people think that's a great idea. I happen to think that it's wrong that under 4% of the population should have a, an effective veto over decisions that are being made for 100% of the population. I just think that's dead wrong. But the government is doing its best to ensure that we don't think about this 
and that the whole thing gets carried through on a tide of goodwill. Now, uh, what I'm trying to do and what others are trying to do is uh, to alert people uh, to the dangers of the fine print and the fact that uh, this is much, much more than the government is letting on. And just on, on leadership, Tony, do you think the average Australian is taking a genuine interest in what politics political leaders are actually saying these days, or has a large majority absolutely just turned off? Uh, In a country that's doing well, and whatever areas we might currently be deficient in, Australia is still by far the best place in the world to live. Look, in a country which is doing well, particularly a country which has done so well for so long, I think people do tend to turn off politics. Uh, Happy the country that need not fret too much about its politics. Uh, the countries where people obsess about politics are normally the countries that have been racked by civil war, revolution, upheaval, disaster. Uh, we've had uh, over two centuries of pretty damn good evolutionary progress. So most people uh, really, they think about politics, if at all, at election time. And apart from that, they'd rather get on with following the footy and trying to have a better job and a better life and making sure their kids are doing as well as possible and so on. So, so look, people are not very switched on, but this particular change, this voice, is a forever change and that's why people should not lightly make it and why they should study it very carefully before they say yes. Are you worried about the forum of debate, i.e. cancel culture? I think that's a real problem. I, I think that throughout the Western world, but particularly in the Anglosphere, yeah. uh, we've, we, we're in danger of losing the ability to disagree civilly. I also think that we're becoming more fragmented and polarised and social media and uh, artificial intelligence curating people's news feeds and so on are, uh, are contributing very substantially to that. Once upon a time... We had more common experiences. Uh, we we tended to read newspapers, for instance. Uh, we tended to watch nightly news. And mainstream media organisations normally feel a need for at least a degree of balance. But if you're getting a curated social media feed, it's going to just give you the stuff that you agree with. It's going to reinforce your existing views, your existing prejudices, if you like. And I think that's that's one of the reasons why these days, if uh, you disagree with someone, the tendency is not just to think that that person is wrong, but that they're bad as well, not just misguided, but arguably uh, um, immoral. And, yep. and I think this is, a, this is a real problem. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Tony Abbott, AC. On our next episode, I sit down with Kate Munnings, Chief Executive Officer of Virtus Health. One in six couples struggle to get pregnant. Like we grow up as young people thinking we um, are frightened of getting pregnant. What happens if we get pregnant, particularly in times gone by? But actually getting pregnant is getting more difficult. Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now back to the show. Mum and dad from England. Dad was uh, a pom. Uh, He came to Australia as a 16-year-old because his father came to Australia to work in the BHP fleet uh, just before the Second World War. So Dad was a a POM who'd become an Australian. He served uh, in the Australian Air Force during the war. Uh, He went uh, through university on an ex-service scholarship, 
then went to England uh, to study um, orthodontics, which in those days you couldn't study in Australia. Mum was an Australian girl doing the London thing. They met, they got married. I was born in England. My sister was born in England. Family came back to Australia and lived happily ever after. Pretty simple story. University of Sydney, why did you choose law and economics? I chose law and economics because I thought that uh, it would be a good preparation for life. Hedging your bets? I didn't particularly want to be a lawyer, but I thought that a law degree would would be helpful. I guess even as an 18-year-old, I had some vague thoughts of being in public life. When I was at university, I got heavily involved in student politics. I became a part-time and occasional journalist for the Bulletin and for the Australian and for other publications. I had three years training for the priesthood when I came back from Oxford, so uh, that was something that was in the back of my mind uh, as a as a youngster growing up. But I worked out after three years in a seminary environment that I was a square peg in a round hole, went into journalism, and then eventually into politics. You said you're always going to retain an Oxford cast of mind. What does that mean? Well, the great thing about the Oxbridge method is that as an undergraduate, you basically have two tutorials a week and you've got two to two and a half days a week in which to assimilate what you've been assigned to read, make what you will of it, and then credibly and as intelligently as you can distill your own thinking into an essay that can pass muster with someone who is a serious expert in the field. So, so look, uh, it's fabulous training. Oxbridge is fabulous training for, for in particular, journalism, law, politics, and public administration, because you've got to get on top of difficult and complex issues quickly and you've got to be able then to credibly advocate in that field. So I was incredibly lucky to have that uh, two years in Oxford. They're not a bad boxer as well? I uh, was talked into being a boxer by uh, the person who uh, turned out to be my best mate uh, in England. Uh, He was the ultimate muscular Christian. He was an American Jesuit scholastic by the name of Paul Mankowski, sadly no longer with us, but... One night in late January, uh, was the beginning of uh, the second term, I was having a few start-of-term beers with Paul. At nine o'clock in the evening, he said, Tony, we're a bit light on for a heavyweight at the boxing club. Why don't you come down and try out? I said no. A couple of beers later, I said yes. Went down feeling sheepish the next day, went through the motions, decided that I was going to come down the following day and tell him I was too busy playing rugby and I couldn't do it. But Paul had noticed uh, the previous day that I had trouble finding a skipping rope that fit. So he'd gone out and bought me a skipping rope. And of course, for a Jesuit who took poverty seriously, spending 10 quid on a skipping rope was quite a big deal. And once he gave me the skipping rope, I didn't have the heart to quit. (laughs) So I went on and I had four fights in Oxford, won all of them in knockouts. But as I kept saying... They were poms and, you know, put an Australian in a ring with a pom and 
What well, the big one was against Cambridge, wasn't it? I had two two bouts against Cambridge, and they both they were both first round knockouts. When you were studying, studying, and you obviously, as you said, you contemplated a um, public life. Who did you admire in politics in those days? Well, I think like every English speaking person interested in public life, uh, uh, the supreme politician was obviously Winston Churchill. Uh, but I guess uh, there are others who are appealing. I mean, uh, Abraham Lincoln was obviously a, a great political leader. Uh, George Washington, whatever you think of the rights and wrongs of the American War of Independence, was obviously a significant leader in this country for someone who was a natural liberal. Uh, Menzies was a great, great leader. And I, I think even then, in the early 80s, Howard was developing as a as a very substantial politician, uh, after B.A. Santa Maria, the most important political mentor that I had was John Howard, and I had the great privilege of serving in his cabinet for something like eight years. And you learn a lot from a prime minister who you serve in cabinet with. So, Tony, if you were going to look back at a, a young man at university today, who would you admire in politics around the world today? Well, again, I think uh, looking back a, a generation, Thatcher and Reagan were great, great yeah. role models. But today it's tough, isn't it? It's tougher. It's tougher. In my time as PM, the most impressive leaders I worked with were uh, Narendra Modi and Shinzo Abe, oh, yeah. both of them transformative leaders of their country. I had a, a very good relationship with David Cameron, the then British Prime Minister, with Stephen Harper, the then Canadian Prime Minister, and with John Key, the then New Zealand Prime Minister. We were, if you like, the the four chums, <laughs> if you like, all being from the centre right of politics and and getting on well. But the traditional Anglosphere has been in the doldrums for the last couple of decades. Mm. Um, this hasn't been a time when America has covered itself with glory. Nope. I think Brexit uh, is a great opportunity for Britain, but it's been a very divisive business and arguably uh, no leader thus far in Britain has been able to fully make the most of it. Uh, Rishi Sunak is coming on well. He's still got a hell of a job ahead of him. But if Rishi Sunak can manage to uh, pull off the unwinnable election, and I think there's a chance he might, he could turn out to be a transformative leader. But uh, as I said, in my time, the two outstanding leaders by far, at least democratic leaders, were uh, Narendra Modi and Shinzo Abe. So when you became opposition leader when in 2009, what was morale like? It was low. We were all completely flummoxed by the defeat of the Howard government because we had thought that the Howard government had done a very good job. Uh, so, look, morale was low. Then Malcolm's own leadership was, uh, was, was problematic because in the end he wanted us to agree with the Labor Party on a very, very contentious policy. The emissions trading scheme, energy policy has been... I guess, uh, an area of enormous contention uh, in this country for the last couple of decades. Uh, Time bit lost, like, doesn't bit, it? A bit like Europe uh, for Britain uh, in recent times, a bit like Ireland for Britain um, 100 years or so back. 
Well, I think we are lost. I think mm. we are lost. Uh, and, and the problem is that in order to reduce emissions, we are committing a major act of economic self-harm. Now, the difficulty is that, in part, I'm sure, because of lefty brainwashing at school, more and more young people seem to think that we are headed for an environmental climate apocalypse. And yet people are quite evangelical, theological about this, hence the obsession with renewable energy. But you cannot run a modern industrial economy on renewable power. The one way to run a modern industrial economy with zero emissions is nuclear, yep. and yet the same green movement which is obsessing over renewables is uh, absolutely, uh, I regard nuclear as unthinkable. Uh, so, as I said, I, I think this is, a, this is a slow motion train wreck that's coming. Eventually, when we have to choose between reducing emissions and keeping the lights on, we will decide to keep the lights on, but we're going to do ourselves a lot of damage in the meantime. Is opposition putting up a strong enough argument? I think that the... Uh, well, they might put in the argument, but are they, they're not winning the hearts and minds. Uh, well, let's see. They may not be winning the hearts and minds now, mm. but uh, once the lights start flickering, I think it'll be different. So the ability to communicate and get the message out, Reagan was one of the best. Mm-hmm. What did you learn from your experience as PM and getting, getting a message out? Well, you've got to know what the message is. That's the important thing. You've got to know what the message is. And you've got to be completely focused and relentless in getting it out there. And I, and I think I was quite good at that. Yep. I don't think anyone was under any illusions about what the government was trying to do when I was PM. I think it was very clear what the government was trying to do. Now, not everyone agreed with it, including some people inside the government. But nevertheless, I don't think there was any lack of clarity. You were surprised by, by the result when you won? No, I thought that uh, we would do, I thought we would surprise people in 2010 and we came within a whisker of victory. We effectively won the election only to lose the negotiation. Uh, I thought we would win and win convincingly in 2013, which we did. So no, I wasn't surprised at all. What did you set out to achieve? Well, I set out to do what we kept saying to the point where journalists could repeat the mantra stop the boats, axe the taxes, fix the budget, build the roads. And in fact, we did all those things. Fixing the budget was a bit problematic because we had to get a lot of legislation through the Senate Mm -hmm. uh, and the Senate was deeply obstructive. And there were some issues with building the roads. The Victorian government changed and the East-West Link, which to this day Melbourne is crying out for, was cancelled, even though a billion bucks had already been spent to start it. But it was truly bizarre that a government would spend a billion dollars not to build a road, but there we are. Andrew's government in Victoria seems to have defied political gravity in all sorts of ways. So the other thing that I was keen to do in that first term was set up in government an ongoing economic reform program And that was what the federation reform and tax reform white papers were supposed to do. They were supposed to give us credible blueprints for which we could seek a mandate at the 2016 election. Now, unfortunately, when I was uh, 
when I was rolled, uh, those processes were, were, were terminated. My successor, very able man, uh, but uh, my successor wasn't keen on the things that I was keen on and the Green Army, the Japanese Submarine Alliance, uh, the tax and federation reform processes, uh, the free trade deal with India uh, were just some of the things that got scrubbed in the immediate aftermath of the change of leadership. If you look back, Tony, what would you have changed? Look, um, it was an incredible privilege to lead the party for six years. Uh, it was a great honour to lead the country for two years. There are a couple of things that uh, I wish I'd been able to do. I'm very sorry that the submarine partnership with Japan didn't come off because had it come off, we would be getting our next generation of submarines about now rather than uh, having to wait another 15 years for the first of the AUKUS subs to roll off. Nevertheless, um, given that the French sub deal was never a good idea, I think that we now finally are on the right track. I just wish we were much further down the road. Uh, with the wisdom of hindsight, we shouldn't have abolished the debt ceiling at the end of 2013 because that would have uh, ensured a lot more fiscal discipline than we've seen, even though the Morrison government did eventually get back to a position of budget balance. Uh, we, we're now way behind when it comes to, to budgetary discipline and uh, fiscal responsibility. People will say that uh, I shouldn't have knighted Prince Philip. I think that uh, uh, it was only a question of timing. Had Prince Philip been knighted uh, at death's door, I think everyone would have cheered, given the <laughs> affection that we suddenly all had for him once we were on the verge of losing him. So look, in the end, I did the best I could. Um, circumstances played out as they did, and I just have to accept that it was what it was. So for the benefit of those people out there who haven't been Prime Minister, what's it like as a job? It's incredibly exhilarating, but it's deeply stressful. It's the most wonderful privilege anyone can have to lead their country, particularly a country which uh, has as much going for it as we do here in Australia. But it is very stressful because in the end, the things that come onto the Prime Minister's desk are the very difficult decisions. If it's uh, an easy decision, it's not a problem. It's only the hard ones that in the end Prime Ministers have to decide. If you could wave your magic wand, Tony, if you're now standing back, you've had all this experience. Federation, mm -hmm. would you still have it? Look, uh, it was wonderful that the six colonies came together as one indissoluble federal commonwealth under the crown. It might have been good if we'd inserted somewhere in that uh, preamble with a an Indigenous heritage, a British foundation and an immigrant character, but at the time we didn't think to do that. Uh, but look, uh, given that we had six separate colonies, Australia was always going to be a federation. Federations have strengths and weaknesses. Look at the United States, uh, look at uh, Canada, look at India, for instance, which is uh, also a federation. The strengths of a federation is that it can accommodate diversity. The weakness of a federation is that it can make government 
on a day-to-day basis more difficult mm. because you've got to get more ducks lined up mm. to get serious things done. But so far, as a federation, we've been able to rise to all of the challenges that have been thrown up at us, and let's hope that continues to be the case. The reason I raised the question, I thought, as a nation, we got pretty um, pretty selfish state by state through COVID. Mm-hmm. And the Federation, to me, started looking, had started showing some of its gaps. And if we had the chance, would we, you know, look at the inefficiencies of Federation. We're only a small country, 27 million. Does it still, does it make sense? Will it ever be tampered with or not? Look, uh, I thought that um, COVID was a deeply dispiriting period in the life of this country and indeed of the wider world. And it depressed me deeply the way we became a collection of squabbling states uh, shut off against each other for months and months at a time. I actually think that uh, it could have been handled differently. Uh, I think that um, under the existing Biosecurity Act, the federal government could, uh, had it chosen, taken national control of the whole situation, uh, but for a whole host of reasons it decided not to and with the wisdom of hindsight, I think that was a mistake. International? How are we playing our game on the international? Obviously, the the thing that most matters is the war in Ukraine. And I think we should be doing more to help the Ukrainians to win. Uh, I think they're fighting for the freedom of everyone, not just themselves. One of the many reasons why it's important that the Ukrainians win is because anything other than a clear defeat for Putin will embolden President Xi... Uh, and the Beijing regime to have a go at Taiwan. The disruptions, the difficulties, the dangers of the war in Ukraine are um, mild and minimal compared to the catastrophe that would be uh, a Chinese attack on Taiwan and the ramifications that that would have for the wider world. So where do you see Australia's role in the Asia-Pacific? Our role is to be as strong as we can, and to work as closely as we can with our democratic partners. Um, The American alliance is critical. The increasing uh, military uh, partnership with Japan is critical. Uh, The growing strategic uh, tie-up with India is critical. Uh, The democracies have to stand together uh, if we want the next 50 years to be as good as the last. Will America really come to our aid? Uh, America will uh, continue to do its best. Now, what does that mean? Uh, to stand up for democratic freedoms. Yeah. Uh, but uh, America's relative position in the world is uh, not what it was, and America is uh, more polarised and fragmented than it has been for a long time. And I think that the quality of political leadership in America right now uh, is not what we might hope for. Well, you look at what the Arabs are doing as well in the Middle East. And they're signing up into Africa in partnership with China. You've got Brazil now having China in there as well. Is America losing its space in on the world? Uh, I think on, that, on the map. I, I think, or his influence. I don't think there would be any country on Earth that wouldn't prefer to do a deal with the United States than with China. But uh, China is able to do uh, underhand things uh, for the benefit of corrupt elites in other countries, which. The Western countries, particularly the Anglosphere countries, um, for all sorts of good reasons, can't do. 
I mean, look at what China's done in the Solomon Islands. I mean, China has essentially bought the Solomon Islands parliament. Uh, China has bribed its way to a position of influence uh, in the Solomon Islands. It's effectively uh, a form of uh, financial conquest uh, that's going on there. Uh, we can't uh, we can't match that. So we've got to find uh, decent ways of winning hearts and minds in countries like that. But how do we do that, Tony? That's that, well, that's the challenge. Well, I isn't it? I, I um, I'm more than happy to have that conversation with uh, the people of authority, but I don't pretend that it's easy. What's the greatest concerns on your mind at the moment for Australia? My greatest concerns are that we will needlessly divide ourselves and establish a thoroughly corrosive element of race in our constitution via this voice referendum and that um, our misguided climate evangelism is going to do uh, very deep economic damage to our country. Tony, if you were to look back at that young man going to university, the world in front of him, what advice would you give him now? Have a go. On that, Tony, thank you very much for joining us today. Good on you, Greg. You've been listening to No Limitations. No Limitations.